Hello and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation from Bristol Water. My name is Chris Thomas and I look after the Quest, our open innovation programme that's on a never-ending pursuit for progress. As part of this, I've been speaking with a number of internal and external experts to explore where the industry should be headed. We want to share our findings and are publishing them in this podcast. Today's episode is a special one, as it's the last in our series. We've journeyed through a number of different innovation challenges that the water industry faces and explored how companies can respond to them. In this episode, I speak with Mel Karam, our CEO, as we shift focus and zoom out a little to look at the industry as a whole. We consider how the industry is evolving and where it can look for further progress. Mel joined Bristol Water in April 2017 from KPMG's global infrastructure team, where he was a partner and global head of asset management. Mel has a long history of working in senior exec positions in UK infrastructure and utilities, including British Gas, National Grid, Scottish and Southern Energy, SGN and Thames Water. He has advised infrastructure and utility executive teams and investors around the world on M&A activities and operational excellence. Mel is skilled in investment management, asset management, commercial and business development, project management and strategic leadership. Mel is an engineer with a first class honours degree in mechanical engineering and graduated with an MBA with distinction from London Business School. Our conversation touches on a number of different topics, such as the complexities of competition, living out the social purpose intrinsic to the industry, and as we have done in every episode, I seek Mel's punt on which of today's innovations is likely to flop. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode, and as ever, please do join the conversation through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. Mel, thank you for joining me today. Throughout this podcast, we've been traveling on what we've described as our quest for progress. The themes we've explored are not just peculiar to us at Bristol Water, they're relevant to the whole industry. So with your perspective as the CEO of Bristol Water, I'm interested in how we move from individual company strategies to contributing to the direction of the industry as a whole. Now, Bristol Water, our strategy is very much around a local approach, and Bristol as a city is a wonderfully independent city. We even have our own currency, the Bristol Pound. And the intent behind that is very much about trying to support the local economy and develop the local community. How does Bristol work with a similar local community approach? I think the starting position for us is understanding our own strength as a company, as a local company. And that's been what we've been trying to do. What is it that makes Bristol Water so highly thought of in the eyes of its customers, local customers and local stakeholders. What we discovered is that it's based on a number of things. First of all, the fact that we are here locally, physically, close to our customers. And the second thing is we've been here for a long time. We've been serving city and surrounding areas for over 170 years. Always been there for the communities, always been there for everyone. And through that period of continuing providing really good service, it's got itself into a very, very strong position, has a very strong brand identity with with customers and stakeholders. And the third thing is that it's always been doing things more than just making sure the water supply to the city is maintained. So these three themes are the themes we're taking as our strength and taking forward. So in terms of uh, being physically local, we actually think... We need to be even closer to the communities and put a lot more emphasis in in physical presence in the society, in the communities. We're encouraging people to be out and about more often. We're encouraging our contractors, for example, from now on, 
to recognize themselves as Bristol Water, not a contractor. We're encouraging our employees to get involved in community and social activities a lot more. For example, we're taking our infamous water bar to every one of the major festivals and events around the city this summer. And those are the things that gets us, e- get, gets us even more present, more connected to the communities. The second thing about history and legacy is that we're trying to get our history much better known. It's amazing that, and I found it amazing when I was talking to quite a few senior people in the city, people who are responsible for setting future plans for the growth of the city, actually didn't realize that they've had this gem of a company that's been there for 170 years serving the city. So we're getting the story much better understood, much better narrated within the city as well. And it actually adds to the connection we have to the city and the brand that the company has. And the third point is about working much closer with anyone, everyone in the city. The two good examples of that is we are very keen to find out technologies that are based in the city, particularly startup technologies that are based in the city, and giving them opportunities to come and work with us through our innovation incubator. And this is where we are providing not just the city with opportunities, and those who usually would find it a little bit more difficult to connect with bigger organizations like us, allowing them direct access to our business and actually using some of our facilities. But at the same time, we're benefiting from that. That's a really good example of really plugging into the things that goes on in the city. And the second thing is working much closer with the other organizations and other entities, businesses. For example, we're working very closely with Business West, we work working very closely with the universities, very closely with the city council and the West of England combined authority in developing a regional, what we call resource efficiency strategy. We call it Resource West. And by doing that, we bring in the water efficiency, energy efficiency, reduction in waste from the city, whether it's businesses or homes, into the overall strategy for the city. So, for example, if you look at the Bristol cities, the one city plan, which is being drawn up by the mayor's office, uh, it very clearly, in the environmental and infrastructure, clearly directly links into water efficiency, for example. So those are the type of things we, we're trying to bring back into Bristol and connect us back to where we think our strengths are, being a small local water company for the benefit of Bristol and surrounding areas. The culmination of all of that, or rather the wrapper we're putting around all of that, is what we call our social contract. And this emanates from the point that we believe, not just for Bristol water and because of its uh, heritage and location, etc., Personally, I actually think the only way organizations can survive in the longer term is for them to get closer and closer to the society and put society at the heart of their strategies. Uh, Doesn't matter what size they are, doesn't matter what business they're in, what sector they're in. I think future is about that because the closer you are to the society, the more likely you respond to what really happens and being able to adapt and adopt your business and therefore survive in the longer term. I think if you look at the history of corporates, large and small, 
local, national, conglomerate, international, you'll, you'll probably find those who've survived longer. It's not really be because of financial strength. It's been because of the strengths they have in relationships with their society. Bristol Water is a good example. You know, where can you find another organization that has survived 170, over 170 years in public ownership? There aren't that many, uh, I guess, around the world. And I certainly think what has been the key success, success factor for Bristol Water and this longevity has been its connection with the society. There's some lovely examples of how that local approach really helps both the water industry agenda around things like managing resources or helping the local economy with innovation or broader agendas around minimizing plastic that, that you gave there. As we look at the rest of the industry, do you think that this, this local approach translates up to the other companies across the UK? I think it does. And I think it's a mindset that companies have to adopt. I think we should move away from big is beautiful. I've always, you know, I've always in my career, I've always worked for larger organizations. Bristol is actually a small organization, smallest organization I've worked for. And so I can talk from experience and say, typically the mindset in the larger corporates are big is beautiful. Uh, centralization is a good thing. Uh, the mindset primarily around economy scale, the bigger you are, the better. My experience in Bristol is actually it's not true. It's not necessarily always true. So we need to change the mindset of big is beautiful. Now, it doesn't mean, I'm certainly not suggesting for, for one minute that we should break up big organizations. But what I do say is a bigger organization must think, act, and behave locally, operate locally, get themselves closer to the communities they serve. There's no point for example, trying to serve a community in you know, one part of the country or one part of the region, one part of the company, where your headquarters, a majority of the operators are sitting in another part. That's just, it doesn't work for the customers. Customers don't feel ownership. Customers don't feel connection and engagement. And on the other hand, staff and employees and contractors don't connect with the society and the communities they serve. And that's just not going to work. So uh, does it translate? I think it does, but it does need a change in mindset, a change in attitude. And it would take time, by the way, as well. So it's not going to happen over time, both from an inside the company. Management employees need to understand the new way of thinking, but also the customers need to start believing and trust and confidence will follow. But um, it would take time. That point's really interesting. So smaller companies that can get close to their community, how do they compete with those that might have the economies of scale? Well, that is another angle to our strategy, which is collaborate more. You don't necessarily have to be, be a bigger organization to have economy scale. You can collaborate with other organizations to gain that economy scale. A good example of it is us, Bristol Water, we share our billing services activities with our neighboring water company, Wessex Water. Probably if we wanted to do that ourselves, we would lose that economy scale, but by collaborating with them very successfully, we've delivered better value for our customers through that collaboration. The other examples are um, locally, we could and we are collaborating with other utilities in providing more joined up local services, working with Bristol Waste, for example, where we're providing efficiency advice at home. So I think there are other ways for smaller companies like us to gain the advantage of 
economy scale without wanting to become bigger in the, in the size of the company. I think that actually is best of both worlds. You can be, be local, be closer to the communities, and at the same time, gain economy scale. That's what I think is the way forward. Collaborate. Mm, it would certainly be quite a radical shift in how many companies have grown up with that, that, that bigger is beautiful philosophy behind some of, some of how they've developed and emerged. I think it starts to also really speak into customer experience and, and the trust that customers hold. And actually, Bristol Water's vision is summed up as, as trust beyond water. Can you describe what, a little bit of what's meant by that? Yeah, we look at it from two different dimensions from a trust perspective. One is we are at the heart of the core a water company. And what is expected from us is that when the customers turn the tap on, what they get is a quality product. And quality measured by both the, the water being safe to drink, but also at the same time being there so they can trust that the water will, will be there. But I think it's, it, it, that is given. That's, that's what not the customers, that's the only thing the customers expect. In fact, that's not the only thing we should expect to happen. If you go back to the origin of Bristol Water, when it was set up in 1846 by an act of parliament, it was set up by a group of philanthropists, uh, the famous family, Fry family in Bristol, who were actually Quakers. They had a very strong view of uh, saving the society and saving communities. And they came to the conclusion at the time that the level of public health issues was unacceptable. And in those days, I think the historian will tell you, the, the century really was, was defined by industrial revolution, mass migration of population into large cities like Bristol. With it came poor sanitation, poor water quality, and diseases like dysentery, typhoid, cholera, were rampant, and there's, there's a stat that says at any point in time in major cities in, in UK and indeed Europe, something like a third of the population were ill and could not work. So they, the, the founders thought one way of dealing with that was to uh, look at water, water supply. In those days, it wasn't actually very clear what the source of these illnesses were, but there were doctors, what used to be called physicians, who'd come up with the theory and idea that actually it was all waterborne. And there was a famous doctor, William Budd, based here in Bristol, who was one of the pioneers of public health uh, improvement through water supplies. And they got together and they came up with the idea of bringing fresh water from outside of the city, from, in fact, from Mendip Hills into the city, and to supply all of the city, in particularly poor areas, because in their view, not only it, it improved health, but by allowing people who were suffering from ill health to be able to participate in the economic growth of the city and economic wealth generation, it would improve the, the wealth of the society. And in their mind, health was wealth. And that's how Bristol Water came to be. That is, in essence, what we call trust beyond water. So the water supply is not just there for the sake of water provision, it's there for public health. And it's there actually for public wealth. And that's where we think we should be now. We should be providing services that go beyond just water at the tap. We should be doing things that helps public improvement in public health and public wealth and whatever that means. And we call it value-adding society and environment. And that's, where we, that's what we think 
trust beyond water is. There is another element of that, uh, that as well, which is in these, these days, even with that sort of the historical and heritage points, people do expect more than just a product. You know, as, as consumers these days, we associate products with services. We don't separate them out. And actually, more than that, product and service, we tend now to expect them to be wrapped up in a positive experience. If you think about public transport, for example, we not only expect to be able to be transported from one place to another, whether it's trains or planes or wherever, we expect a good service during that. And even more than that, we expect to have a positive experience. And that's another angle when we talk about trust beyond water. We're talking about as an organization, not just providing the product and the water, but a good service. So making sure that the, all the associated services, whether it's to do with provision of new connections or billing activities or whatever, those services are provided at best possible as well. And even more than that, that the experience that public have and our customers and consumers have from us, the experience is a positive experience as well. And that's another angle when we talk about trust beyond water. It's always a really heartening story. And actually, I spent some time with the water quality team just recently looking at the very original line of works that was put in and is still operating today and serving the city. So it's, it's, it's really encouraging to see the impact that that has had and continues to have. I think um, there's a lot of news around the water industry at the minute. It's been in the headlines a lot, not always for the, for the right reasons. But one of the most consistent debates is around whether the industry should be nationalised. And there's pros and cons on both sides and many viewpoints. What, what would you feel is the, the most compelling option there and why? Personally, I think the debate about form of ownership is misguided. I don't think the issues relate to form of ownership. As I said before, when I look at Bristol Water and it's very, very high standing with its customers locally, it's all to do with the way we operate and how we operate rather than who owns us. Bristol Water has been in private hands for over 170 years, and it still has an extremely good relationship with its customers. We, we are regularly voted as one of the best in the um, UK CSI annual customer satisfaction surveys amongst utilities, amongst water companies, amongst our peers. When our customers are surveyed about their experiences with Bristol Water, it's got nothing to do with formal ownership. It's to do, as I said before, right from the start, from who we are, where we are, and how we operate. And I think the more we talk about the formal ownership, the more we lose sight of what actually is the right way of operating and organizing ourselves to run public utilities, essential services, public services. So I, my personal view is that actually, I, first of all, I'm not qualified to talk about forms of ownership and pros and cons of those, but also I think they're not the discussions we should be having nationally or at the industry level. We should be talking about how do we get better at serving our customers, meeting their expectations and being better operators in the society. Picking up on that then, where, where some of um, the questions are about how we should operate, many of the ways that the regulator is looking at helping the, to challenge the water industry and, and push it forwards is looking at different markets and there's upstream reform and there's potential household retail. Maybe to pick each of those off and, and, and get your views, can you explain a little bit of, of what a household retail market might be and, and, and whether you feel it would be beneficial for, for customers? Well, first of all, just a general point I would make about competition. I do think competition can bring very positive benefits for customers and for the society as a whole. 
generally speaking, and it's a, it's a generalization, where there is competition, you tend to get better services at, at better prices, better value for customers. Choice is always good, as every one of us know, you know we all consumers and customers are also different products and services. The more choice we have, the better we feel about it. And when we don't have choices, typically, you know, good feel goes away and the experience becomes a little bit more negative. Having said all of that, I think my experience in some of the other sectors, for example, in the energy sector has been that although competition and domestic competition as well as industrial, commercial and non-household competition has brought huge amount of benefit to the customers, in my view, it has brought with it some negative aspects. So we've got to be very careful that we don't go into competition with our eyes shut, not understanding the unintended consequences. So a couple of consequences, unintended consequences of bringing competition in without checks and balances. One is the complexity that we add to the customer's experience. Typically, again, as a consumer, we'd like to have a one-stop shop. We don't want to be sent from pillar to post if there is an issue with our water supply or energy supply or whatever. So whatever happens behind the scene in a competitive environment, we have to make sure that from a customer experience point of view, it doesn't damage customer experience. The front end needs to be seamless. So if, for example, we introduce domestic competition, household competition into water supplies, then we've got to make sure that that doesn't cause customers lack of service because they now have to deal with two or three different entities. That's one example. And that does mean we have to work a lot harder on making sure the processes behind the scene are smooth and work better. The, the second point is about competition for the sake of competition itself may not provide the best service for the customers because it might actually introduce some diseconomies of scope. So, so long as it's these things are thought through, I personally think competition, whether it's non-household, household, etc., is in the interest of consumers. Specifically talking about water, there are a number of different areas of the water value chain that can be opened up to competition. And I think the sequence by which we do that is also really important, just as important as how we do it. I think upstream competition, in fact, is the most important one to get right first. It's by far the most critical and the most urgent issue in the water sector. Scarcity of water in the environment and the trade-off between leaving water in the environment and taking it for public consumption is so important that we need to look at that a lot more than we've done historically. And I also think by doing that first, then we collectively will have a much better understanding of value of water and therefore, when we do go eventually at some point, if or when towards household competition water, we'll do it with our eyes wide open on the value of water that then is provided to the customers. So they're the only two things I would say about competition. But in my view, in general, in principle, competition is good. When I first when I joined the water industry and came to Bristol a couple of years ago, from my role at KPMG, um, from the infrastructure business, one of the first things I felt was necessary is to get me and the company much more engaged, although we'd been very, very active in the introduction of the open market for non-household activities. 
I wanted to be even more engaged and more involved and actually drive some of the forces that uh, improves that particular market. Because in my view, if it proves successful, then we can then talk about moving on to the domestic and household competition. So I joined the um, board of Mosul, the market operating services. And through that, I've been personally trying to make sure the experience, the market experience there is positive and is seen as being positive. And I think that's really important if we are collectively believe a mar- you know, comp- market competition is a good thing and we need to move towards domestic and household competition, then we need to make sure that non-household market works well to start with as well. And in that space then, are there sort of examples of things that are working well and things that are not working so well yet that we can hang on to and learn from as, as we look towards household competition? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a really good exercise in understanding where the issues have been. The issues have been uh, the industry and participants in the market have been dealing with and really good lessons on how those should be taken into account if and when we move towards household competition. For example, data and accuracy of the data at the time of transition is really, really important. And one of the lessons I think we are learning is that it's it's really important to get the data accuracy right, both at the time leading up to, at the time of, and post-opening up the market. That's one really big lesson, and we're still working on that. On the positive side is getting the systems to work smoothly and reducing the overall cost of uh, market participants is really important as well. And that's worked really well in terms of having an industry system, a singular industry system that allows all the transactions to be controlled. Quality control is really important as well. And those are the two big things that we need to get right uh, and the lessons from non-household into household market. Great. And another area that, that interests me when, when we consider markets is, is what they could look like if we extend them beyond their own edges. So if we compare to telecoms, a big theme not so long ago was around quad play, where a provider could provide you your landline, your mobile phone, your TV and your broadband. If other utilities were joining forces in a similar fashion, is this something that would bring benefit to customers or is similar to your other point, is that something that risks a bit too much complexity? It could do either. It could do both, in fact, depending how it is introduced. On one hand, having a single point for customers to go to is a positive thing. I mean, certainly from a personal experience, wouldn't it be great if I didn't have to deal with five or six different utilities, whether it's telecom, water, gas, electricity, or even my council tax, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Wouldn't it be better if I just dealt with one instead of four or five? That would be great from an experience point of view, service and experience point of view. However, I also at the same time want to make sure I get the best value. So if we can, through joining up and collaborating with other sectors, whether it's purely at the front end and the user interface or whether it's behind the scene, if we can do that and provide best value for the customers and the best experience at the same time, great. If, on the other hand, it's done in a way that adds to the complexity. So, for example, there's a company who provides these services, but every time the customer calls up you know, to make a change to the bill or change to the service level, they have to deal with five or six different organizations behind the scene. Now that's, that's poor experience. So it could be either. If it's done properly and it's done for the purpose of customer experience and value for the customer, great. And I think that could potentially be a really good model for the future 
if on the other hand it's purely done for the benefit of economy of scale and behind the scene and actually co- provides customers with poorer experience then no it, it won't it won't work and i think we've seen examples of both in uh, energy and telecom sector as well we've discussed here a few pretty substantial options around how the industry could have improved to to service customers what do you think is required to make some of these things happen? What are some of the steps that we can be taking now to get there? Change of attitude and change of um, <laughs> belief that the society is changing, the expectation of society is changing, the corporate culture of the past is no longer fit for future. And if we don't change, we as in corporates don't change, then the change will be imposed on us. And I think we've seen some of those negative aspects and negative perceptions of the society on the corporates. I think most of those are to do with the changing attitude of the society and the corporates not catching up fast enough and believing that the future survival of a lot of the organizations would be jeopardized if we don't respond. Um, Continuing operating the way we've done in the past with the strategies of the past, which has been pretty much how do we advantage a corporate in a market from market position is not good for future. I think the corporate strategy for future should be on the basis of how do we capture the imagination of the society to be much more connected. That is, in my view, the single most important change we need to make. If we do, then I think most of the other things, which is how do we do it, would follow because we don't, we're not short of people who can come up with solutions once we identify what the direction of travel and the, the ultimate aim is for the organizations. The purpose is the most important thing. The purpose of the organizations, corporates like us, need to be changed to reflect the societal expectations. It's almost a societal purpose needs to be put right at the top of every organization. And I, I'm proud to say, you know, we've, we've done that. We've recreated ourselves as an organization with a social purpose. And our board and our shareholders and our uh, management team fully signed up to the fact that that is, that is our future. A little bit easier for us because it's been our legacy. It's been our heritage. We have been, we were set up as an organization with a social purpose. And for us, it's, it's simply a reconnection with our history. Some of the others may find it a bit more difficult. It's a really superb challenge there, I think, for, for, for people to mull on and, and could consider how to construct that into their own, their own companies. I'll change tack now a little bit slightly from some of these bigger industry challenges. This has been a, a series of podcasts around innovation, and I'm keen to ask you the same question I've been asking everybody around what they think the future might look like when it comes to innovation. But rather than ask for where the next big ticket items are going to come from, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued at the opposite end of the spectrum. Are there any innovations you're seeing that are emerging into the industry that actually you're not sure of and actually might disappoint us all a little bit? I'm going to be a bit more, I mean, I've, I know I've been a controversial, yeah, um, controversial throughout all of these, I think, talking about um, things that probably the others will, I don't know, raise an eyebrow. But this one, I think, is going to raise a few eyebrows. Uh, there is a hell of a lot of discussions and talk about big data analytics, et cetera, et cetera. And there isn't a day I get emails sent to me by consultants, other organizations who want to sell me big data analytics solutions. Well, first of all, to say I'm not averse and I'm not unfamiliar with these. In fact, um, 
part of my role when I worked at KPMG in the advisory business was to advise businesses on systems, information systems, information management, data analytics, large and small organizations, corporates around the world. So I'm not unfamiliar with any of those. But I think it's a big, big hype. And I think if we're not careful, we collectively, an organization, are going to spend a hell of a lot of money, a customer's money, into things that are not going to work. Data analytics are important, but they're only one element of getting things right. People, culture, values of organizations are just as important in my view, if not even more important. The changes that we are talking about in the sector, in the industry, in my own organization, our own organization, they're not going to come about just by putting a new system in place. Yes, we need accurate data, absolutely 100% right, but it's people who actually be, behave in a way that sometimes results in inaccurate data, inaccurate analysis, inaccurate reporting. We create those systems of work. We create those processes in uh, where you're working. And if we don't have the right values, if we don't believe in integrity, accountability, trust, and professional approach, in my view, we could be spending a hell of a lot of money on things that eventually are not going to make as much difference. So just coming back to the question, is there going to be a big flop? I think we're going to see a few companies are going to be spending a hell of a lot of money, not getting a lot of value out of some of these new analytical systems. On the other hand, if it's done very, very carefully and with the right attitude and you know, people processes in mind, there is some value in those. Mel, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for uh, sharing your views and challenges uh, for the industry as you see them. And um, thanks also for, for sharing your prediction as we collect the different failures we, we, we might forecast as, as, as we go through. It's much appreciated. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us on our innovation quest. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards, we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk.